Paul writes in 2 Timothy chapter 2, You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus, and what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, and trust to men who are able to be, be able to teach others also. Share in sufferings as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. Uh, this young man that uh, you're going to hear preach today is uh, a young man that I was lucky enough to find a couple years ago. The Lord put us together. And it was in him that I first saw what Dr. Alcorn had saw in me. God was calling him to preach and gave him an unnatural desire for the word of the Lord. I'm not going to build him up too big because I don't want him to. <laughs> no, but uh, it, it has just been a sweet, what's it been, three years, three and a half years, whatever it's been. Uh, he is the pastor at the church that Liz and I had began uh, in Sedalia, Missouri, and he's going to continue and remain to be the pastor there and to grow that church for the glory of God. And we get a great privilege of being able to hear him preach this morning, and I'm so glad that he came. Not only is he here, but where's your beautiful wife, Lainey? She's down in the nursery. He is here, his wife, Lainey, you'll see her after the service, his son, Stevie, and his daughter, Everly. And we have also, in that same church, a young man that, who was Stevie's best friend that I met at the same time, who God is doing a same very special work in. Uh, he is Damon Shaw. He's right here. Put your hand up or do something. And his wife, and his wife Kelly, and is Ada downstairs as well? They've got a little girl named Ada that's down there as well. They came to visit us this week and wear me out. I went to D.C. on Tuesday. I walked seven miles. I went to New York City on Thursday with them, walked 20 miles, and to the shore yesterday, and I don't know how many miles. But it's been such a great time. Uh, we haven't been able to see them since, since we left Missouri. And I'm so glad he got to come today to be able to preach for us. So um, we have Stevie McAdams preaching for us this morning. Good morning, New Jersey, and uh, Christ Church back at home. They should be online, I think, this morning. So good morning back to Missouri, who's uh, behind us. Um, if I'm going to turn your attention to Colossians chapter 1 this morning. That's where we've been uh, at home in our church. It's a, a passage that has really captured my heart, and what really captured my heart about it was... Uh, verses 9 through 14. It caught my eye early, um, early on as I was reading through Colossians, and uh, it's Paul's prayer for the church. Uh, it's Paul's prayer for the members of the church um, that they grow, that they gain knowledge in who God is, that they know the gospel that has been proclaimed to them, and that they walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, as you see in verse 10. And he kind of goes through this, uh, this prayer that he has for them. Um, and then at the end of that little passage there, uh, in verse 13, he says something that kind of sets off a, a different subject, and it gives them context. Uh, it points to them who has paid for them and what paid for them. Uh, if you read, I'll read verse 13 for you. It says, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, 
in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sin. And then he goes into this long description of who Christ is. And then the verses that I'm going to focus on today, verses 21 through 23, and I'll read them for you and then we'll pray. says, And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much um, for just this, these wonderful people. Um, it is the very truths of these verses lived out. Your word goes forth. The gospel goes forth and saves people all throughout the world, in Missouri, in New Jersey, <laughs> everywhere, Father. Just, it is, just as your son said it would. Father, I pray this morning that I can preach Christ and preach Christ crucified and nothing else. Father, there is nothing more than that for these people or for anybody, believers or non-believers. There is nothing more than Christ and him crucified and where we stand on that. So, Father, lead me. Open the eyes and the ears of these people to hear your word in the gospel. I pray this all in his name. Amen. So, uh, Tim kind of took my thunder this morning uh, in his uh, Sunday school message this morning, but it's hard not to do that because there's a constant theme all throughout the New Testament, all throughout uh, Paul's epistles to the churches, all throughout Peter, James, Hebrews, uh, John proclaims the same thing. And the the thing that he proclaims is what John says in John chapter 3 that you must be born again, that there is true conversion. Now, this has been uh, misunderstood, mispreached, uh, mistaught for years and years and years in the pulpit. And uh, there will be more on that later. But there's these different ideas uh, nowadays, nowadays of what true conversion is, especially in America. Uh, true conversion sometimes is just a simple walk forward in a prayer um, and and then a life of no uh, fruit from that. True conversion uh, is sometimes found not even knowing Christ. Uh, we know that uh, in the Jewish culture. They don't accept Christ. But my task today is to lay forth clearly the means of true conversion and what true conversion looks like. What does it mean to be truly converted, to follow Jesus Christ, to be born again, to live unto Jesus Christ? What does it mean? And Paul lays that out clearly. I'll read for you verses 21 through 23 again. He starts out, listen to how it starts out. There's kind of a beginning, a middle, and an end. A beginning and a middle and an end. And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds... He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless, alienated to holy and blameless, hostile in mind to holy and blameless. 
doing evil deeds to holy and blameless, and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. So it always, like I said, there's a beginning and a middle and an end here. The beginning would be verse 21. True conversion always begins with uh, a truly evil individual. Uh, This has been lost in our pulpit. We don't preach on sin enough. The sin in the pulpit has been lost. Nobody tells people who they truly are. I want to point out to you something this morning. If you read verse 3, it says, Paul says, We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. And then verse 4 says, Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus. I want to point out to you something. The Apostle Paul had never met these people in Colossae. He had never known them. He had only heard about them. This is a letter to people who he has not known. Uh, If you read further down in the passage, uh, it's uh, verse 7, just as you learned it from Epaphras. Uh, The context there is that Epaphras likely heard the gospel from the Apostle Paul uh, in Asia, and then Epaphras took it back to Colossae and proclaimed it there, and the people there heard the gospel and put faith in Jesus Christ And then he went to other communities, and they went to other communities and proclaimed the gospel, and people heard and placed faith in Jesus Christ. But the Apostle Paul had not met these people, but there is one thing that he can say with absolute authority and certainty about these people, and that's verse 21. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. Have you ever heard somebody say, hey, uh, you with the face? I hate it when people say that. It annoys me because it's... I mean, like 10 people can turn around, right? Because everybody's got a face, right? Well, there's, you can say with certainty that everybody has a face. <laughs> well, he can say with certainty that everybody was alienated, hostile in mind, and doing evil deeds. It's not up for discussion. There is no innocence in this game. None of it. We know from the fall of Adam and Eve that all had been All had fallen at that moment. There were none that had escaped this. And we know that by everybody dies. Everybody dies. And the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. Sin is a real thing and everybody is cursed with it because everybody will die unless uh, the Lord comes before your death. Everybody will die. That is what he says first. Uh, All men are alienated and hostile in mind, and all men do evil deeds. Now, I want to look at these terms, alienated, and what they mean. Let's dig deeper. Alienated alienated means to be detached or outcast from God. No man who is unconverted is innocent. This shows not just just how the sinner feels toward God, but how God feels towards the sinner. It's not just the sinner's thinking about God, but... Uh, contrary to popular opinion, is that God feels a sort of distaste, a great hatred for the sinner. Now, we are to love the sinner and hate the sin. But there is a doctrine, and I could clearly show you in Scripture, that God hates the sinner. He is at enmity. They are at war. They are alienated. They are outcast. They are the enemy. He has no relationship with them, and contrary to popular opinion, he does not hear or even listen to their prayers. They are enemies of God. But this is not 
just God pushing away those who seek to come to him. See, God is holy. God is holy. He cannot look upon sin with delight. He is holy, and that means a, whole, a, a great deal, and these words matter. And if God is holy, set apart, pure, he cannot look on sin without distaste, without hatred for it. God has many attributes, and one of them is wrath. And judgment will come, and wrath will come for those who are outside of Jesus Christ. For that I can, I can say with a surety and authority. And that's clearly laid out in Scripture. But this is, Paul continues his description of the lost as hostile in mind. So not only are they alienated, not only are they separated, but they're hostile in mind. Now this is how the, the unbeliever feels towards, towards God. This is how natural man feels towards God. They hate God and his holy standards of righteousness. Uh, as a matter of fact, they align with Satan and serve Satan and his desires rather than God. Ephesians 2, 1 and 2 says, and I, I understand that you guys are going through Ephesians 1 and 2. I think you're starting chapter 2 next week, if I'm not correct. But uh, I'll give you a little uh, taste, a little appetizer here. It says, And you who were dead in the, tre- in, in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, you were dead in them in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, that's Satan, the prince of the power of the air, that's Satan, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. We really don't have to imagine what this looks like, do we? I mean, I, I listened to last night a, a Q&A. Uh, it was actually at the Puritan Conference between John Piper and John MacArthur. And MacArthur kind of went on this like 10-minute rant. Uh, he's a great preacher, and he's really good at making these things clear. But he had basically... Um, described America now as, as paganism 2.0. And it's exactly what Brother Tim said this morning, Pastor Tim said this morning, is that they've just put, in, put a different dress on the same thing that these people were doing here. You say, how crazy is it that they were worshiping statues? Well, it's just as Tim said this morning, how crazy is it that they're worshiping government? And you should feel that too, conservative. You can't get away from this either. It's not faith in the Republican Party either. They're not going to fix this. They're not going to fix this either. The problem is, is that all men hate God and in their natural state. They're all hostile in mind, and, and that goes to a lot of different things. One of the biggest questions that we have to answer is, how is it that a loving God could do something like that? And I tell you, how is it that a loving God can let you take a very breath? That's, that's by God's grace that he lets it continue. He gave Adam and Eve everything. Everything. They were in paradise. They had everything they needed. When we were in the Bible Museum, it, it struck me so much. Is that, and I could just, it struck me. They were standing in the garden. They were in paradise. It looked great. And then after eating of the fruit, it showed that. Uh, we were in the Bible Museum in Washington, D.C. And it showed them taking a bite of the fruit and the, and the curse being given and then being cast out of the garden and i and it showed adam all of a sudden and he was he was working out in the field he was sweating he was trying to provide food for his wife and i couldn't even imagine me myself doing that oh, you're in paradise it's like waking up from a dream almost you're in paradise everything is how it's supposed to be and then all of a sudden you're in this hard labor you're being introduced to labor and I imagine myself when I was first introduced to labor when I turned 16 and had to get a job. It's kind of a wake-up call. 
Well, think about how much of a wake-up call it was for Adam. And why is it that he said, you shall surely die? God had commanded, you shall surely die. Yet they were given breath. Yet they were given breath. They had still been provided for. God provided them with clothing. God continued to watch over them. And God continued to carry this thing out. He, he also gave, in the curse, he gave a promise to Eve that there would be one to come, the seed of a woman, a man, Jesus Christ, to save the people, to save his elect from the sin that they had fallen into. We really don't have to imagine what it looks like we know. This brings us to the final way that Paul describes the lost and unconverted. He says they are doing evil deeds. So not only are they separated from God, not only are they hostile in mind from God, but they carry it out. They carry it out. They, they, they start to do the things that they think of. And many people wonder, what is it, what is it that separates me from, from a Hitler? What is it that separates me? I bet, I bet to the very point that you walked in this church, some of you have thought some of the most evil thoughts that you could imagine. And I bet you guys know exactly what I'm talking about because I know what I'm talking about. Some of you have thought of some evil things that you didn't even know that you could think of. It's because it's your nature. It's because it's who you are before Christ. It's because it's who you are. It's in you. <clears throat> so, now they have, he describes them as doing evil deeds. They're not just separated from God. They carry it out. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanders, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. And then in, uh, that's all in Romans 1. And then in verse 32, he puts the cherry on top. He says, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they don't only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. That sounds like Pride Month in America. That sounds like going into a bar. They give approval to the sin that they carry out. There's a certain joy that the evil get in the evil that they do because they love it. They dwell in it. They desire it. Now, these are hard things to hear, but you must go through this to understand the gospel in a greater light. You must go through this. These descriptions are not just flaws that the unconverted man has. It is his nature. It is who he is in mind and in deed. And it does not matter how they look to the outside world. Look at the Pharisees. Look at how they looked to the outside world at that time. They were the, the religious leaders. But Jesus, knowing their heart, knew that they were evil as evil could be. They used the word of God to gain power and to do evil and to steal does not matter how you look to the outside world. It matters who God says you are, and God clearly lays out in Scripture who they are. They were so close yet, so alienated and hostile in mind, and they carried out their evil deeds. Now, this is all basically a description of how much they cost. How much do they cost? See, because the doctrine of God being holy still applies. And how can a... a uh, evil people be reconciled to a holy God? How can they be paid for? How, they cost a lot. How can this be paid for? 
Paul's statement continues in verse 22 with the heart of the gospel. He says, He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. This is the means to the reconciliation. This is, his, this is how they are bought. This is how you were bought if you're in Christ this morning. This is how you were bought. It says he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. The great transaction is one of my favorite ways this is described. It's the great transaction. It's Christ for the sinners. That's what it is. That's what it is. Salvation is a triune work. And as we have already, already stated, in order to bring the unsaved in, those who are haters of God, an eternal punishment must be paid. An eternal punishment must be paid. There's another doctrine in the Bible that people like to, to run from, and that's hell. There is an eternal punishment that will be paid. God is an eternal God, and you have sinned against an eternal God. And for that, your eternal punishment is eternal hell. And that's clearly laid out in Scripture. That's the truth. That's the reality that we must all face, and one day we'll all face. And to, to some will say, look, look at what I've done. Look at all these good works. And to some will say, nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. Simply to the cross I cling. There, there had to have been somebody to pay for you. You could not have worked your way out of this. You could not have paid your way out of this, out of this judgment, out of who you are. Salvation is a triune work. The Son of God took on the likeness of men and became flesh. And as a man, Christ went to the cross. And on the cross, Christ paid the full payment for those who hated him. Now, it's one thing to say that, uh, that I love you or that love is something. But this, this is what I'm getting at. This is what I'm talking about here. In order to understand love, you must understand who Christ came to save. Christ came to save those who hated him, those who did not love him. This is not a love like the world knows. It's, a, it's I'll love you if you love me. Respect is earned, not given. No, this is Christ giving love to those who, who, who did not love him. This is a one-way love. It's an agape love. It's a divine love. This is a divine love. You must understand these truths in order to understand this love. He suffered alienation from God. This is why he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In Matthew 27, verse 46. He suffered the hatred and wrath of God for sin. Isaiah 53, 10 says it was the will of the Lord to crush him. And Isaiah 53, 5 says he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. When Christ prayed in the garden and he was sweating blood there's many different understandings of what this passage means there's many different thoughts of what this is about but it says he said my father if it be possible let this cup pass from me he was not sweating blood because he was afraid of some nails he was not sweating blood because he was afraid of some nails and what the romans and the jews were going to do to him that was not the suffering of the cross the suffering on the cross was he was, sweating, he was sweating blood because that cup represents all of God's hatred and wrath for sin. And Christ drank every drop. The price had to be paid in full. It couldn't be halfway paid. It had to be paid in full, all of it. Now, it would have been one thing to say that, that Christ had saved us. Maybe we only had to go to, to hell for, for a thousand years. 
for 50 years, for 30 minutes, but Christ paid it all. We, we receive glory and honor. We become like Christ. There is no hell for us. There is no hell for us because of who paid the price. You want to know how great Christ is? Look what he did. Look at what he accomplished in the cross. You want to know how much God hates sin? God hates sin. Look at who he sent. You want to know how much God hates sin? Look who had to pay for it. You want to know how much he loves you? Look who he sent. These things all work together. All of God's attributes come together at the cross. They all come together at the cross. He was <clears throat> Christ suffered a violent death on the cross by the Father in order to reconcile those who were enemies of God to God. Which brings us to the result of our reconciliation. Christ died in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. The Father, verse 22b. Holy means to be separated from sin in the world and to be separated and set apart unto God. Blameless means without blemish, without sin. It is finished, as Christ said. You are no longer seen as a sinner. You are no longer seen with, with evil desire as who you are. You're no longer seen as evil because of Christ. We are no longer blemished and with sin and corruption. We have, and above reproach means to be beyond blemish. No one can accuse us of a single charge that will hold. Romans 8.33 says, Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It's a rhetorical question. It is God who justifies. This is how God currently sees us in Christ, as if we are already glorified. The blood of the Lamb covers us, therefore we are no longer condemned. We are truly converted through Christ's death and resurrection, to go back to the title of my message, because what what Paul is going through in verses 15 through 20, he lays out who Christ is and basically what he's saying, if he has died for you on the cross, then you are justified indeed. If it is Christ who has died for you, if it were somebody else, it would not have saved you. But since it, were, since it was Christ, you are justified indeed. It has been paid in full. Christ, Christ, Christ. Apart from Christ, we're nothing. We have nothing. But because of Christ, we have been given everything. We have been given everything. This is how God currently sees you. And that's the truth of the cross. Our sin was imputed to Christ. He bore the penalty for the sin. Christ's righteous life, his perfect life that he led. Because it's just one thing you have to understand. It's not just forgiveness of sin that gets you into heaven. You have to be above reproach. You have to be beyond that. You have to be righteous. You don't just get to be even and make it neutral. There is no neutrality in this. You have to be above reproach. Something that none of us could accomplish, but Christ did. If we only needed Christ for forgiveness of sin, he would have came down and died on the cross and gone back up. But he had to live a righteous and worthy life. When God said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased, that has been imputed to us. Just as he clothed Adam and Eve in the garden with they, they covered themselves. They covered themselves in their own righteousness, leaves that would wither, that would fall away. But God clothed them with, with animal skin, something that won't fall away, something that won't tear, that won't break away like they had, the righteousness that he provides. And in the same way, he provided the righteousness through his son. So our sins were imputed to him, 
and his righteousness was imputed to us so that we can be clothed in Christ's righteousness. He, he accomplished it all. He accomplished it all. <clears throat> but finally, Paul sums up this passage by giving us the evidence of true conversion. So there, there's this side of it. There's verses 21 and 22. If you are truly converted, it has been done by this, Christ and Christ alone. Christ is the one who reconciled you to the Father. Now he gives another if. In verse 23, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. That's a big if, isn't it? This is the other part. The other part is that there's many people who sit in churches. There's many people who claim to know Christ. There's many people who say they believe in God. And they're unsaved. They're unsaved. They don't know God. They're still alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds. And that has been lost in our pulpit. Because, you know, one thing that uh, I was talking to Brother Tim about was there's many um, uh, churches with many people in them. And you go to them and you listen to their sermons and they seem a little watered down. And there's many people that, I, I just heard about a church back home when uh, it was taught that uh, if you didn't believe in God that you were going to hell, that there was punishment for it. And it about caused World War III. In a Baptist church, in a Baptist church, okay? There's, a lot of people don't know and a lot of men won't preach the true gospel because Unfortunately for them, 70% of their congregation may get up and walk out. But there is truth. It's all throughout Scripture. Paul lays it out clearly. If you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast. Uh, 2 Corinthians 5, 17-18 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. If, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this from God and through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That's that same word, reconciliation. To put it into simple terms, it's a triune salvation. God the Father sent God the Son who died for us, who, who lived a righteous life, who died for us. And in, and in that, he sent the Holy Spirit upon conversion, does a supernatural work of regeneration in the believer, conforming that believer to the image of Christ. Daily. It's a daily occurrence. Daily. There's a new creation. You were once alienated, and now you are a child of God. Those who were once hostile in mind now have the mind of Christ that seeks to do the will of God. And those who once did evil deeds now do good and righteous deeds. Not to be forgiven, not to be saved, but because they are saved. Because it's a supernatural work. This is supernatural, okay? This is not just I believe, therefore I'm saved, time to go party and live it up because now I have this uh, vaccine. I have this flu shot. I'm good now. Good to do what? Your evil desires? Your desires have not changed, but this is clear. You're regenerated. The Holy Spirit is within you now, and he has changed you. As Ezekiel 36 says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. What kind of father would God be to let his children run around 
like heathens? What kind of father would you describe me to be if they did? As a matter of fact, if they were up here, they might be. Man, that's convicting, isn't it? What kind of father would God be if he let his children run around like heathens? But he doesn't. They, they, they've been adopted and they start to take on the family image. And if you're saved here this morning, you know exactly what I'm talking about. They desire God's word. They're in prayer. They're stable. Their faith is stable and steadfast. Has your faith continued stable and steadfast? So many times, especially uh, back at home where there's a church on every corner, I hear that I gave my life to Christ when I was young. And then as time went on and I I went through a rough patch when I was in my teens and uh, about for about 10 years and and then I came back to Christ. That's not stable and steadfast. That's not stable and steadfast. That's an unconverted person coming to Christ. That's all that is. You don't you don't go away from this. There are times of backsliding, there are times of sin. Yes, I believe that. I struggle with it myself. As the Apostle Paul said, who, who knew greater uh, weakness than we do, said, wretched man that I am, who will save me from this body of death? And he was talking about it at the present as the Apostle Paul writing Romans. Okay? He struggled with sin. But there's a difference between struggling with sin and dwelling in it and enjoying it. And enjoying it. <clears throat> That's not stable and steadfast. That's false conversion. That is just a lost person. Um, some are just way more obvious than others. First John 2.19, as I uh, talked about earlier, it makes it clear they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would, not, they would have continued with us. Um, back in my hometown where I grew up in California, uh, I would say, uh, Kelly could probably attest to this because we went to the same youth group, but I would say 90% and I, I wouldn't, uh, I'm not afraid of saying that. 90% of the kids who attended youth group, and it was a large youth group, uh, many of them went off to universities. Many of them went off in their lives. They were the leaders of the youth group. Trust me when I tell you that. And now they're atheists. That's not losing salvation. That's never having it. And they filled a gym every Wednesday night with unconverted people. And they didn't proclaim a true gospel. They didn't preach on sin. They didn't preach on true regeneration of the heart. There's always a cool story and, a, and some laughs and great songs. <laughs> they had to keep them in there. <clears throat> Finally, I will end by saying true conversion stands firm on the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul says, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. We cannot put our hope in anything but Christ. The gospel that Paul preached is grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. If you shift from that gospel to a gospel of good works, you are a false convert. If you shift from hope in the gospel of Jesus Christ to money, you are a false convert. If you shift from the gospel of Jesus Christ to the Republican Party, you are a false convert. Hear me now. Our faith is in Christ alone. There are many things that we don't understand. There are many evils in America today and that we don't like. But our salvation is found in Christ and Christ alone. True conversion is faith in Christ. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. Now, 
he ends, Paul ends this with something that you all need to hear. That you all need to hear. He says, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. If you want to know what Paul preached, he preached this. He preached the gospel. He preached that men are evil. The, the whole first three chapters of Romans is Paul preaching on how evil men are. He's stripping away every sort of self-righteousness that they may have. Righteousness, circumcision, they were Jews, Gentiles, whatever it may be. He stripped it all away and said, no, you're the same as every other man, just as these people in Colossae. I don't have to know you. I don't have to know your life. I know that that's true. That's the gospel that Paul preached. That's the gospel that Paul preached. Now, I want to say something, and I brought this book with me. This is why I love coming out here, okay? It's, it's the evangelistic zeal of George Whitfield. It's by Stephen, Steve Lawson that uh, Tim has talked about, I'm sure, many times, and he, he spoke of this morning. When we went to the Bible Museum, there was this huge section about him. And there's, you know... I, this can all just become academic jargon, but there's a reality to it. And the reality to it is that you too must proclaim this gospel. He has given us all a command to proclaim this gospel and to live it out. To live it out. I want to read this. It's from page 16. This is why I love coming out here. Uh, Tim took me to Philadelphia back in March, and it just, I mean, I saw some things that I didn't enjoy, but... There were some things that I did enjoy, and it was this. This is from page 16. It's uh, written by Stephen Lawson. It's, <clears throat> Whitfield first traveled to Philadelphia, the second largest city in the colonies, where he preached inside Christ Church and then subsequently moved outdoors. Two days later, he addressed upwards of 6,000 people, roughly half of the 13,000 people who lived in Philadelphia. Whitfield then journeyed to New York City, where he preached to the largest crowds ever gathered in the colonies. He first spoke to, to 8,000 in a field, then on Sunday to 15,000 in the morning, and finally 20,000 in the afternoon. Never remaining stationary, he returned to Philadelphia area, preached again to a swelling number in Elizabethtown, Elizabethtown, New Brunswick, Maidenhead, and Neshemini. Is that right? Okay. <laughs> On November 24th, Whitfield entered Philadelphia with mounting momentum. With multiple thousands attending his preaching in the morning, he stood before 6,000 people. This is over in Philadelphia in the evenings. 8,000. The crowds grew to 10,000, and by Sunday, 25,000 gathered to hear him preach. His, his farewell address drew upwards of 30,000, more than twice the population of the city. Benjamin Franklin, a close, a close friend of Whitfield, documented what he described as enormous, enormous numbers, estimating the area covered by the crowd and allowing two square feet for each person, Franklin wrote, I computed that he might well be heard by more than 30,000. This reconciled me to the newspaper accounts of his having preached to 25,000 people in the fields. These vast numbers covered more than a dozen city blocks and souls were impacted for eternity. Boy, to, to get 30,000 people in a crowd... I don't think he could preach this true gospel, and I don't think he could preach it down in Philadelphia. But he was drawing numbers of 30,000. He had an impact. People were converted. Lives were saved. Now, how can a man 
bring 30,000 people together. Well, I think somebody spoke of it this morning. We go, people fill up stadiums every Sunday. They'll be filled up at noon when we leave. They've already filled it up in London watching football games. How do you get 30,000 people to watch it? Well, you would have to entertain them. You'd have to entertain them. But look at this. This is, a, this is something that I want you guys to see. If I turn over to page 71, the, the question must be asked. He was preaching. What was he preaching? He was exposing sin. Whitfield, verse, uh, this, is, uh, this is page number 71. Whitfield was convicted, convinced that any presentation of the gospel must begin by exposing the listener's sin and his dire need for salvation. So he was, he was preaching on sin. He was preaching what the Apostle Paul teached. And then Whitfield, this is off page 74, Whitfield next proceeded to the saving death of the Lord Jesus Christ. The message of sin is dark, but by it the truth of salvation through the cross shines that much brighter. Few men have ever proclaimed the death of Christ with greater precision and power whenever Whitfield preached. And finally, on page 77, Whitfield, moreover, was continually expounding upon the necessity of regeneration as a great theme in his preaching, according to Lloyd-Jones. There's an often repeated story in which a woman asked Whitfield, after a preaching service, why do you keep saying to us, we, you must be born again? The great evangelist answered, because, dear woman, you must be born again. This was the central thrust in his many sermons, namely the absolute necessity of regeneration in order to gain entrance into the kingdom of God. That's the gospel that we must preach. I've been over to Philadelphia. I went down into Kensington Avenue. As a matter of fact, I didn't have to go down into Kensington Avenue. Right downtown, the main drag there. I don't know. What do you call that? That is the main drag, okay, as we say in redneck terms. Uh, there was a man, and I'll never forget this. This has made an imprint on my mind forever. It will, I'll always remember this. He covered his, he had his face, it was 20 degrees. He had a light jacket on and sweatpants, and he covered his face with his jacket. And it looked like he was screaming in his jacket because he was, he was, he was scrunching his whole body. His body was contorted and twisted. And it was the, the result of heroin use. And he was right down there in downtown Philadelphia, which has changed a lot from where Whitfield had preached in downtown Philadelphia to 30,000 people. But he needs the same thing that those people needed. The gospel. The, the kids in the school need the same thing that you needed. The gospel. Husbands, I'm talking to you. Wives, I'm talking to you. Fathers, I'm talking to you. Mothers, I'm talking to you. If your greatest prayer is for anything other than your children to know the Lord Jesus Christ, then it is in vain. It's pointless. It's useless. They must know Christ, and they must know the full gospel. And it must be a way of, of, of culture, like, like Tim taught us on Wednesday night. It must be a way of life. Because if you are saved, it is a way of life. Okay? You hear me, New Jersey? All right. I love you. <laughs> Let's pray. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, I pray for, for this gospel to be proclaimed throughout all the nations to all the peoples. I long for the days we read this morning for every knee to bow and everybody to proclaim Jesus Christ is Lord.
You're my prayer this morning, Father. Do a work amongst these people. Do a work amongst this community. May it be ever on their lips, Christ, 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 and Christ alone. There is nothing else for us. Thank you, Father, for this grace, for your love. See none better than through the cross. And it is in Christ's name that I pray. Amen.